I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Checkpoint inhibitors aren't new, but Immutep is developing therapies that target LAG3, a checkpoint discovered by its chief scientific officer. The LAG3 gene codes for a protein that plays a role in the regulation of the immune system and is expressed on T cells. Immutep is seeking to target LAG3 to both stimulate the immune system to treat cancers and suppress the immune system to treat autoimmune diseases. We spoke to Mark Voigt, CEO of Immutep, about the LAG3 checkpoint, the company's lead experimental candidate, and its partnerships with GSK and Novartis to develop therapies for cancer and autoimmune diseases. Mark, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Uh, thank you for having me. We're going to talk about Immutep, its lead experimental therapy, and the target it's pursuing as it seeks to address cancer and autoimmune conditions. The complexity of the immune system seems endless as new targets to regulate the immune system continue to emerge. How well are we able to modulate the immune system with existing therapies today? Yeah, first of all, uh, there are some uh, pretty good therapies out there. Um, cancer immunotherapy or immuno-oncology has been changing um, the treatment landscape. Um, first of all, uh, it really started with anti-CTLA-4 back in 2011. Then a uh, very, very um, successful development of the anti-PD-1, 13, 14, uh, and especially the anti-PD-1 therapies have been super successful. Um, in the past two decades ago, maybe it was seen uh, a little bit, uh, yeah, as a as a joke or a kind of uh, fantasy that your own immune system uh, could help to eradicate cancer. And then you saw with cancer immunotherapy that actually a kilo of lung tumor could uh, simply disappear based on your own little T cells. So there has been a great deal of success. Um, and in many different indications, 30 indications or so, you saw uh, important changes. However, on the other hand side, uh, since 2013-14, um, there have also been a lot of um, disappointments or misfortune or um, targets where the initial hope didn't materialize finally. So it took seven, eight years actually to have the next one, uh, which is uh, LAG3, clinically validated uh, last year and uh, commercially validated and approved uh, this year by the FDA in uh, March and uh, also approved in Europe. So um, a great deal of success, uh, but also um, a number of uh, um, concepts which didn't work out. Imitep is focused on LAG3, which is a, a cell surface molecule. What role does LAG3 play in regulating the immune system? 
Yeah, Alex3 is uh, an immune checkpoint, and you can think of these immune checkpoints like little triggers in our immune system with which you can uh, dim uh, the immune system up or down. Obviously, in oncology, if you have cancer, you would like to have an active immune system, actively fighting cancer. In autoimmune system, your uh, own immune system is obviously Uh, in autoimmune diseases, your own immune system is obviously out of control and you would like to bring it back to the right uh, balance. And LEX3 is uh, ideal, um, we believe, for both approaches. On the one hand side, you can target the T-cell, um, if you like, uh, the soldiers of our immune system, CD8 T-cells. On the other hand side, via the major ligand MHG class 2 uh, on the antigen-presenting cells, um, dendritic cells, monocytes, if you like, kind of the generals of the immune system providing the information whom to attack and also um, uh, heavily involved in drafting new soldiers, uh, if you like that analogy. Um, with that, you can activate the immune system. So there is a negative modulation and there is a positive modulation of the immune system. So the X3 is one of uh, uh, the great targets uh, in immuno-oncology as well as in autoimmune diseases. And how common is LAG3 to these cells? Is it How specific a, a response can you get with it? You can get uh, specific uh, responses in autoimmune diseases. Uh, these uh, T-cells and LAG3 is an exhaustion marker, uh, accumulate at the disease site, um, so it's it's very specific there it's um, a very upstream approach um uh because the uh, the t cells are the basis practically for more than 90% of autoimmune diseases so that could be pretty uh, pretty specific and in oncology there are different approaches on the one hand side anti lex 3 um where you keep your T-cells active, similar approach like anti-PD-1, anti-CTLF-4, anti-Tigit, you name it. So you block the checkpoint at the T-cell in order to keep the T-cell active. Um, and on the other hand side, uh, with activating the antigen-presenting cells via MHC class 2, um, you have an option uh, to uh, broadly um, if you like, boost your immune system, so boost your antigen-presenting cells, uh, activate them, and then via the physiological way have more CD4, CD8 uh, T-cells, more NK cells, um, and also a TH1 response subsequently. There's this growing arsenal or tool chest to stimulate the immune system, calm it down. What makes one approach better than another for a given disease? The data, um, at the end of the day, it's uh, uh, evidence-based medicine. Um, so you need to to have the data um, generated uh, at the end of the day in clinical trials, uh, as nice as preclinical experiments are. And um, they give some hints, of course, at the end of the day, it's about clinical research. And you need to be uh, either superior in terms of efficacy, or you need to be as efficacious, but uh, better uh, tolerable. Um, so you simply have to play a, a role in, in the concert of uh, uh, standard of care, uh, as simple as that. It sounds simple maybe, but it's of course a big challenge. You have a variety of different clinical trials, uh, combination with anti-PD-1. There are 
hundreds of clinical trials out there. Um, so you have to differentiate yourself and you have to convince as a concept, irrespective of what kind of concept it is, uh, with clinical data. Your elite experimental therapy is known as FT. What is FT and, and how does it work? FT is uh, a practically leg three itself, if you like. So we use the checkpoint. We use leg three to activate the immune system via MHG class two. So it's an antigen presenting cell activator, an APC activator. So it's distinctly different from the anti-leg threes. And when leg three is being discussed, very often one is automatically referring to Anti-Lex3, uh, which is uh, done by Bristol-Myers-Squibb, by, by Merck, and by our licensee Novartis. Um, but Eftilagimod is a unique APC activator. Actually, we are globally the only ones um, uh, activating uh, the antigen-presenting cell via MHG class 2. There is TLR, there is CD40, there is Sting, and maybe the one or the other concept. Um, but uh, I believe we have uh, here the most powerful and least inflammatory way to activate um, the APCs. And our leadership position um, can maybe also be explained um, by uh, the work of our chief scientific and medical officer, Frederick Tribel, who actually uh, discovered Lex3. Um, he is an immunologist and oncologist and the worldwide leading scientist uh, for Lex3. So we have um, yeah, all our program centered around leg three um, and uh, um, center of gravity of what we are doing is, as you uh, rightly said, FT Lagimod or FT. You're exploring this in combination with other immunotherapies, with chemotherapy and with, with both. Why are you not looking at FT in cancer as a potential monotherapy? Oh, we did that. Um, so we have... Uh, um, uh, some monotherapy experience, for instance, in renal cell cancer. Um, there has also been different um, scheduling or administration work being done as a monotherapy. We have, um, if you like, kind of IO monotherapy trial in metastatic breast cancer, where we combine FT-Lagimod with chemotherapy uh, versus chemotherapy plus placebo, but FT is obviously the only IO. So there is some monotherapy data and, of course, activity. But on the other hand side, the reality is um, that in most indications, you actually face combinations. Let's look at, uh, for instance, um, non-small cell lung cancer. You even have their doublet uh, chemotherapy as one standard of care or uh, Keytruda plus chemotherapy. And uh, combination therapies are uh, established since uh, decades. Folfox, Folfiri, for instance, in uh, colorectal cancer. So it's nothing new. Um, and I believe it's also um, the right way to go to combine with different standard of care. So to provide the patients uh, with hopefully good tolerability with the best uh, potential outcome. And this is typically achieved in most indications via different combinations. What makes it a compelling choice as a combination therapy? First of all, it's an easy route of administration. Uh, so FT-Lagimod is given subcutaneously, uh, 30 milligram. Unlike, for instance, immune checkpoint inhibitors, anti-PD-1, um, often given intravenously, 2-300 milligram or up to 800 milligram, depends, of course, on the concept, on the drug. Um, so easy route of administration. 
It's one thing. It's uh, very safe. Um, the most frequent uh, side effects are uh, injection site reactions, grade one, grade two. Um, uh, so from a, a patient compliance point of view, I think it, it can play a very nice role. And of course, at the end of the day, um, besides being uh, well tolerated, it's about the efficacy. And there, what we saw is, uh, I believe, pretty encouraging uh, in different indications, such as head and neck or non-small cell lung cancer or metastatic breast cancer, and is a pretty robust fundament, I believe. FDA has potentially broad applications. How have you gone about prioritizing the indications you're going to pursue? Yeah, that's uh, also a good question. So indeed, um, when uh, you are looking at the different indications as a biotech company, um, you have to make some choices. You can't do everything. And even within one indication, uh, you have uh, uh, different options. So you need to make some choices. And we try to look at this in a very objective way. So you look, of course, at the potential benefit, which could uh, be provided to the patients. Um, you look at the feasibility, so how many patients you could recruit. Um, you look at the competitive landscape. You look at timing. You look at resources, cost. Of course, you look also at the commercial uh, perspective. And then you come to uh, conclusions uh, and uh, possibly prioritize uh, one approach or one indication or one uh, subset of patients uh, versus another. Uh, in the case of FD, where has that led you? Yeah, that's um, uh, a decision we made uh, relatively recently. Um, indeed, FD is a very uh, versatile, um, practically uh, pipeline in a product. Um, so we address, obviously, the patient's immune system, and this could work in a variety of different indications. We have different uh, uh, clinical uh, trials or performed different clinical trials in the past. We have uh, uh, seen data, so we needed to make some choices, and uh, we believe that the uh, first priority um, is in first-line non-small cell lung cancer, especially on the basis of data we uh, relatively recently presented at the ESCO in an oral presentation. Um, also, um, we will uh, continue uh, to prepare for late-stage clinical trials in metastatic uh, breast cancer. Uh, but if you need to spend um, $1, and this depends, it's described on many factors, and other factors, of course, also the key opinion leader environment, other strategic stakeholders uh, in the game, um, but then you uh, try to maximize, and this would be, uh, even though it's a very, very big indication, of course, also with challenges, uh, but in uh, first-line non-small cell lung cancer. What's known about FD from the studies you've done to date? Yeah, so we have um, different data points. First of all, um, what I said earlier on, we activate the patient's immune system, um, activate uh, the APCs, and then via the physiological way, more CD4, CD8, more NK cells, TH1 response. This is actually something you can measure in patients. In uh, May this year at the ESMO uh, Breast Cancer Conference, we presented some uh, biomarker data out of uh, the so-called APEC clinical trial, the metastatic breast cancer. It's a randomized, double-blind, um, controlled, 
clinical trial uh, looking at the paclitaxel plus eftilagimod versus paclitaxel plus uh, placebo. Uh, and there we actually measured in patients um, a significant increase, for instance, in terms of CD8 T cells, in terms of activated monocytes. We saw an increase um, in CD4 uh, T cells. We saw uh, an increase in terms of the hemokine um, CXCL10. Um, so we were also able to link the improved immune status to improved overall survival. So there's a statistically significant correlation. Um, so first of all, we see that the hypothetical concept boosting patients' immune system is something you can measure in patients. So that's, uh, of course, very important, especially uh, in a controlled clinical trial. Um, second point is uh, that we uh, have uh, a good safety profile so uh, that we are not adding, for instance, what you see with many immune checkpoint inhibitors, that we are not adding uh, to uh, the uh, onset of autoimmune diseases, treatment-induced autoimmune diseases. So we do not see that. I mentioned already uh, the injection site reactions, um, but I think that's very manageable. And then we see efficacy. For instance, in the combination with uh, anti-PD-1, um, pembrolizumab or Keytruda, whatever you prefer, it's a term, um, we saw in first-line non-small cell lung cancer as well as in second-line head and neck cancer uh, that we are able um, to, um, for instance, double the overall response rate and that we can also achieve responses in patients which would typically not or suboptimally respond to an anti-PD-1 therapy uh, alone. Um, so this was pretty nice and has been leading, uh, for instance, to an oral presentation at ESCO, um, obviously the worldwide biggest and most important clinical oncology conference. We are very excited that we had the chance uh, to do that, but um, of course we are moving forward and there will be uh, hopefully uh, other exciting uh, data points in the future. We saw also a good signal in melanoma, in second line head and neck cancer, in metastatic breast cancer. And that's fairly important because marketing statements are one thing. And of course, um, you would try if you can, based on facts, uh, to um, talk about your concept, but the data needs to be there. The fundament needs to be robust. And you need to have a chance to position yourself in the concert of existing standard of care and also in the light of other late stage um, developments. Now, what's the development path forward? Yeah, so we have um, a different um, uh, potential, different potential clinical trials. First of all, we are conducting a randomized trial in first line, head and neck cancer, together with uh, US Merck. Um, which is good. We have uh, been teaming up with a big pharmaceutical industry repeatedly. So they provide a Keytruda. Uh, we conduct the trial. It's a trial looking at first line headed neck cancer, um, uh, randomized. Um, so Keytruda plus FT Lagimod versus Keytruda within uh, the label of Keytruda plus satellite cohort where uh, practically you can't measure PDL1, so so called CPS score where we give also the combination, but it can't be controlled because no PI would give uh, an anti-PD-1 therapy there. So this is ongoing. It's currently recruiting. 
we recruited now around about 30% of the patients and we hope that we have uh, uh, the recruitment uh, uh, finished um, uh, mid of uh, next year and then we would see also of course first data. This trial is based on fast track designation by the FDA um, so that's um, quite important. We are also continue to treat patients in our TACTI002 clinical trial in first line non-small cell lung cancer um, second line non-small cell lung cancer refractory to PDX treatment uh, and second line head and neck cancer. Um, it's fully recruited, but of course there are still some patients under treatment. So we uh, perform that trial. We relatively recently announced a new trial in soft tissue sarcoma, um, which is an investigator-initiated trial from uh, the Marie Curie Center in Warsaw in Poland. It's fully funded by uh, the Polish government, and um, it's uh, looking at the neoadjuvant setting, including uh, radiopharmaceuticals. Um, so it's a new setting, and it's, uh, of course, uh, quite exciting. And you will possibly see us also moving forward, initiating new clinical trials or enter into new collaborations in order to horizontally roll out the FD-Lagimod case, meaning uh, to detect uh, additional signals in uh, different other uh, indications. Imitep has a number of collaborations, notably with GSK and with Novartis around different candidates. What's the general approach Imitep has taken on partnering? How, how do these different collaborations fit into your overall strategy? For us as a biotech company, um, the uh, big pharmaceutical industry is... Uh, the natural customer, um, uh, this is a very typical business model for uh, most biotech companies. Uh, we have uh, currently uh, no um, commercial capabilities. Uh, if that would change over time remains to be seen. But for biotech, very, very often big pharma is a customer. And you should know your customer, irrespective of the industry you are working in. Um, you need to be exposed to, for instance, criticism if they don't like a concept or if they don't like a trial or whatever. So we were always a fan of uh, discussing uh, with them relatively early on to team up, um, uh, to pass uh, due diligences, of course, with uh, all confidentiality which is attached to that, and of course, with protecting your own position. But it's important that you incorporate uh, your potential customer and the guys who are active on the market every day uh, into your plans and into your development strategy because we develop our drugs um, towards the market. We would like to see that our approaches can make a difference for patients. And in order to achieve that, it's good if you team up and uh, we have uh, collaborations of different nature. So we have exclusive worldwide licensing agreements with GlaxoSmithKline, with Novartis. We have a territorial uh, licensing agreement with EOC Pharma for FD Lagimod in China. We have clinical trial collaborations uh, with uh, US Merck, with German Merck and Pfizer, um, where we collaborate on a, a, a specific clinical trial. So I believe it's very important. Um, and it's, of course, um, not a secret, um, also in every industry, if you have a uh, um, potential number of competitors, um, if what you are doing is delivering good results and it's getting more and more interest, 
then you can um, uh, potentially also achieve a better price if you have a number of bystanders and interested parties. Well, walk us through each of those collaborations. Let's start with Novartis. Novartis um, is our exclusive worldwide licensee for Ira Milimap. That's an anti-Lexry uh, program. So it's, uh, if you like, the mainstream of the Lexry development. So anti-Lexry, typically in combination with anti-PD-1. Novartis is uh, conducting uh, five clinical trials. Um, and uh, they published some results. Um, and we hope, of course, that they publish um, some more results in the future. It's uh, a milestone and royalty-bearing uh, partnership. With um, uh, a GSK, uh, to go to uh, the next one, it's also an exclusive uh, worldwide uh, licensing arrangement. Uh, GSK in-licensed um, GSK-781. It's a depleting antibody positioned in autoimmune diseases. Um, GSK-781 is a cytotoxic antibody designed uh, to destroy the chronically lex-reactivated T-cells. Uh, it has been uh, moved through uh, preclinical development by GSK um, and uh, has been uh, successfully tested in two phase one clinical trials, one uh, in uh, healthy volunteers and psoriasis patients where the biology um, uh, has been tested and uh, um, uh, has been also measured and confirmed. Uh, one trial in healthy volunteers and Japanese and Caucasian patients. They then jumped to a phase two in ulcerative colitis. That trial um, uh, had been stopped and discontinued. And we are waiting for a uh, next step. The licensing agreement has not been terminated. Also, we are waiting for next steps and uh, potential uh, new areas of development um, for IMP 761 or GSK781. It's been a tough market environment for public biotechs. Imitep is trading at less than half its 52-week high. How far will existing cash take you, and what's the plan for raising additional capital? Yeah, first of all, you are absolutely right. The uh, biote uh, biotech markets, equity capital markets, are, of course, uh, difficult. We saw a drop, uh, for instance, in the XBI, the relevant uh, ETF, um, from, I don't know, 140, 150 to uh, now um, 78 or 80. So uh, a lot of biotechs, especially in the small cap, um, uh, have been losing Unfortunately, a great deal of uh, value, but you have to live um, with those times and um, uh, you need to uh, execute your business and uh, make a difference. It's not the first crisis we see in the markets. Um, we have a seasoned management team. Um, we have always been very strict in terms of our budget. There is no money to waste. It's uh, money our shareholders and investors have been entrusting us with. So it's our job uh, to uh, deploy that uh, hopefully wisely and to get the best value out of the dollar invested. Um, and, and this starts uh, with um, every uh, employee, all the expenses uh, that we negotiate quite hard. Also an environment where you see inflation kicking in, where you see maybe um, uh, more difficulties in terms of supply chains that you have your business under control. So our cash life is currently till uh, uh, early 2024. 
we have uh, um, been in the past and we continue to do so, uh, budgeting uh, conservatively. And we are, of course, fully aware of the market conditions. Uh, we are not uh, stressed about uh, raising cash in the short term. Uh, I believe we have a number of different um, strategic options. Um, we have uh, um, different possibilities. Um, we have been getting, getting a great deal of support from our institutional investors, substantial holders, for instance, uh, Fidelity. We have a very good um, Australian and US and Asian and European institutional investors. We have a number of uh, retail, so-called mom and dad investors, for which we, of course, or for whom we have, of course, uh, uh, very high responsibilities because these investors can't be uh, immunologists or um, not even experts in oncology, um, which means that we have to transparently communicate. But I believe we have a pretty realistic view in terms of the market. I believe that Lex3 in general is in favor. And yes, our share price suffered as well. That's true. Um, but um, we have uh, a lot of uh, potential. And I believe we have an exciting uh, fourth quarter of this year, um, which is actually running. So uh, we uh, plan to uh, present at SITC in Boston um, 8th to 12th of uh, November. Um, so there is uh, a lot to expect from us. And uh, I think um, if the share price is lower and what we believe maybe not so much reflective of your value, in turn, it believes that it might be an opportunity for the one or the other investor. But main thing is that we continue to deliver that our basis, the data, uh, our manufacturing efforts, our regulatory affairs, that this is in good order and that this is delivering and showing a robust fundament uh, for our products and um, uh, the company. So forgive me, how much runway do you have and is there a plan to raise additional capital here? Uh, currently, no plans. We have cash runway till uh, early 2024 um, and uh, yeah, no actual plans to raise cash. Mark Voigt, CEO of Imitep. Mark, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.